Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Which brings us to tonight's event. In Vanishing Twins, Dietrich meshes psychology, science, pop culture, art, architecture, Greek mythology, dance, and language to create a lucid, suspenseful portrait of a woman testing the limits and fluidities of love. It's by turns acutely insightful and keenly observed, a distilled work that mines so much from its minimalism. It's earned some wonderful praise. Essayist Chelsea Hodson writes, these ideas paired with her sharp, nimble sentences made it impossible for me to put this book down. It's been called a stunning portrait of her marriage and her lifelong search for twinship, poignant and extremely hard to shake. A stunning and fascinating narrative that delivers a startlingly touching blow. Leah Dietrich's essays and short fiction have been published by BuzzFeed, Bomb Magazine, The Nervous Breakdown, and The Offing. She's the author of a book of thank you notes, thanks, 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 thank goodness for everything. She lives in Portland, Oregon, and Los Angeles with her husband and daughter. Also joining us this evening, we've got Sarah Manguso. She's the author of seven books, including 300 Arguments, Ongoingness, The Guardians, and Two Kinds of Decay. Her work has been supported by Guggenheim Fellowship and the Rome Prize. She lives in Los Angeles and currently teaches in the Low Residency MFA program at New England College. We're thrilled to have them with us this evening. Please join me in giving them a warm welcome. Thank you so much Thank for you, being Sarah. here. All right. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I have permission from Leah to sort of share our, our origin story. <laughs> uh, I moved to L.A. in 2010 uh, because my husband thought he should make a video game. And, uh, you know, that sort of thing happens a lot here and you know, he's just an artist, and he's like, no, he, he. anyway, um, that's, that's a really old, uh, it's like a sort of parallel narrative, but um, mine uh, begins when I land in LA, uh, I can't find a teaching job anywhere, and so within about nine days, I decided to just start teaching school in my house, and so uh Eden Lampoki, who has this wonderful self-made, like, one-woman MFA program, said, like, um, yeah, you don't have to actually teach in the program. You can just, like, do your own thing, and it can be, like, you know, you can say it's part of WWLA. And I was like, great, that's exactly what I want to do, exactly what I want all the time. And so I just invited um, the, first, the first group, I think, was six women. I don't remember which group you were in or which group you were in. Um, they're everywhere, but, um, you know, people came to my house, and it wasn't really like school, and um, people brought poems, and we um, we read companion pieces, and, you know, we were all grown-ups, and we all had careers elsewhere, um, you know, sometimes multiple careers elsewhere, and um, so this brings me to Leah, who is 
you know, just one of these fascinating women who was in my living room getting yelled at by my small cat. Um, and um, what is, well, what is um, immediately remarkable, notable about Leah is that she has that particular capacity for attention that athletes have. And I, you know, I say this like, you know, I've been like dawdling along in this teaching career for like 20, 24 years now at a lot of different places and a lot of different milieus. And my favorite students are very often athletes or, or former athletes, and by that I include dancers, of course. And I think it has something to do with, among other things, the, the deep practice of translating um, instruction that may be given in language into something that's just not language. And, and it's this facility that other people just don't have. And even when I was teaching at NYU, um, you know, everybody was had this fabulous backstory and was from like Venezuela and Japan simultaneously, or, you know, their dad was like an arms dealer. There was like one person at the table who, you know, it just had total attention. I was like, oh my God, there's there's the athlete. And in fact, she was an athlete and she was the best writer in the class. And so that that was what like drew me immediately to Leah. Like, there's the quality of the attention. And then, um, you know, after, after our poetry group was over, uh, we continued working together. And she said, oh, I have a book of prose to write. And I thought, great, you know, all I want is to read books of prose by poets. That's That's all I want to read. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it seems that very quickly, um, we then just like, you basically just immediately published this book, although I, <laughs> yeah. I know it's been like, mm -hmm. what? It's been like six it's been or like seven eight years, years or okay. eight years well, since that, yeah. Time is a flat circle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, I'm so I'm just so delighted that this book exists, and I'm even more delighted that I know the author, geniusy author. Um, so, so that's what you should know first about Leah, I think. And um, as for my describing the book, I don't want to. I don't want to do that first. I want to just um, ask Leah to read. How about the the intro, the first five parts? Sure. So the book is broken up into an overture and three acts. So these first five sections comprise the overture. During my ballerina years, I danced mainly in the corps de ballet. This is the term for the group of dancers who are not soloists. The literal translation is the body of the ballet. And as such, all the dancers in the core move together like synchronized swimmers. They are one body, but not even a body. They are a backdrop for the principal dancers, just scenery. In high school, I was given the option of studying French or Spanish. I chose French because it was the language of ballet. Pas de deux, rond de jambe, plié, jeté. I've been saying these phrases for years, but until I started taking French, they'd just been the names of steps. I didn't know what the individual words meant. We all took pseudonyms at the behest of our teacher. These were our French class selves, the people we became when we spoke that language. My best friend was also a dancer and renamed herself Giselle after the main character in the ballet of the same name. Giselle goes mad after being cheated on by a lover and dies of a weak heart. In the afterlife, she's taken in by a group of female ghosts called the Willies, who force the man who betrayed her to dance himself to death. Because my best friend chose a ballet character, I did too. 
In school, as in dance, she was so self-assured, so effortless. I studied her movements like learning choreography and hoped that when I repeated them, they would appear to be my own. My alter ego in French became Odile, a character from Swan Lake. Odile is the black swan, the villainous doppelganger of the white swan, Odette, who is really a princess turned into a swan by Odile's sorcerer father. In the ballet, both roles are, are danced by the same ballerina. I always dreamed that someday I'd get to play them both. In 101 Stories of the Great Ballets, George Balanchine calls Giselle the archetype of a romantic ballet. To be romantic about something is to see what you are and to wish for something entirely different, he writes. In Giselle, the willies wear billows of white tulle, so they seem part of the world, yet also above it. The ghostly spirit, the sylph, was ballet's symbol of romantic love. The girl who is so beautiful, so light, so pure, that she is unattainable. Touch her and she vanishes. One-eighth of all natural pregnancies begin as twins, the book said. But early in pregnancy, one twin becomes less viable and is compressed against the wall of the uterus or absorbed by the other twin. Of course, I thought. I lost my twin. This was after I'd read all the other books, the books about sexuality, the books about marriage, the books about love. None of them comforted me like this book did. The story followed a pair of identical twins who were struggling to grow up without growing apart. My husband and I were struggling with that too. I read it in one day, in every room of the house, on my stomach, on my back, on my bed, in the yard. I didn't worry about the ants scaling my thigh or the black widows under the outdoor furniture. One eighth. I tell people this statistic when I tell them I'm writing about my search for the twin I never had. The number makes me seem less crazy. Suspicion is a philosophy of hope, Adam Phillips says in Monogamy. It makes us believe that there is something to know and something worth knowing. It makes us believe there is something rather than nothing. He's referring to the suspicion that one's partner is having an affair, but the same holds true for the existence of my twin. I've always preferred being in the company of one other person to being in a group. I'd always thought this meant I was antisocial, maybe, but maybe it's a desire to return to the relationship I had with another person in the womb, that pre-person, my little mirror ball of cells. Thank you, Leah. Thank you. A wonderful beginning. Um, how did you choose the form of the book, or how did it choose itself? I think it began just the way that I had... Um, the time to write in that I was writing these little prose poems. You know, I, I think I thought I wanted to write poetry, like when I met you. And, um, but my poems were always paragraphs. And so I was like, are they prose? Are they poems? So I was writing these little things and slowly but surely they all kind of seemed like they were related to each other. And when I found the, the kind of lens of twins to use, then I started to be able to just generate more and more of these little diversions or, you know, things that were related to love or twinship or relationships or marriage. And, um, yeah, it kind of just came together in, in that way. I was hoping you would say that. It seems, <laughs> it, doesn't it seem magical? I mean, it's like so easy to write a book, obviously. Yeah. You just, <laughs> no. Um, I always prefer hearing a narrative like that to one that, you know, is effortful. I wrote my pages and I, you know, um, that's great. Okay, keep yeah. it magic. <laughs> um, 
I, I also am curious, um, how did you know you were done with the book? You know, asking as somebody for whom books have kind of come together in a similar way, um, I frequently have a hard time knowing when it's done. Yeah, I think, especially when, you, you know, writing about your own life, it it continues. Mm-hmm. And so it was difficult to know what, where to stop. And, but I don't know, I think in the same way that a lot of times in any artistic pursuit, you have this sense that isn't intellectual of just like, that's it. You know, it's mm-hmm. just, it wasn't a conscious thing. I think I just knew that I, I had an image in my mind of like the last scene and I, I always just kind of kept writing toward that. And then I but was open to the idea that if I get to that point and it doesn't feel like that's the end, then I'll keep going. But it did, you know, really like mm-hmm. very magically or satisfyingly. I was like, yeah, this still feels like the end. However, although like the architecture of that final scene was the same in the first draft as it is now, it was like infused with so much more detail and different detail that made it, I think, much more hopeful than it was when I first wrote it. (laughs) So it it feels very different, although it kind of like looks different if I just picture it in my mind. Yeah, that's not very helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Something else I I definitely want to ask you about is... um, Another thing that makes you an un- unusual book writer, uh, which is that you were uh, or continue to be uh, a person who works for an ad company right. who generates lots of writing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, client facing stuff, and it probably is asked to throw away a lot of writing. Mm-hmm. And so that relationship to the, to the work or to one's work is very different from the relationship that many of my students who are, you know, at colleges and universities have to their work. And it's, um, I don't get a lot of people who sort of do client-facing writing and then come to, you know, poetry. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think it's a lot of what you're saying about, you know, I had this experience of being really used to people critiquing my work, even if it wasn't work that I cared as deeply about, you know, on a day-to-day basis and just having to not be... um, to not take it too personally when they were like, no, that's stupid, whatever. You know, like really dismissive, like, nah. Um, so when it came time to, um, to like engage people that I really cared, you know, about their opinion, I was much more willing to trust their edits, especially because I was used to this, you know, concept of feedback and working. And if it was someone I had sought out to work with who opinion I valued, I was like, yes, I should listen to that. Like, of course. So, and, you know, the revision process. Yeah, I just didn't, I wasn't too precious about anything. You know, no, I don't remember. For better or, really or worse, but yeah, all along the way. And I think when I got my editor at Soft Skull and I realized that she understood really well, like the, the tone and like project of the book, I, every suggestion she made felt like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and then I tried to hopefully fulfill that is the a request. Ne- never let her go. Yeah. Um, what's something that you cut from the book that was unexpected or maybe difficult to hmm. leave? There was a lot of things. I think I mainly cut a lot. There's a lot of like outside texts that I bring in, like a, a Lover's Discourse, the Barth um, book, and Adam Phillips' Monogamy. But there was like a lot of other ones that were maybe extraneous that 
there was Alison Bechtel's Are You My Mother, which I, is a book I am a huge fan of that I kind of wrote a bit about. There was like um, Breton's Nadia. There was like all these, all these other outside influence and sources that I think, yeah, they were just, there was like too many, I think. <laughs> I don't know. And that was, but in terms of like the narrative, there was much more that I added as time went on than like let go. And I think that that was really the work that I needed to do the most of was like letting go of some of the things that I was using as a crutch, maybe other people's thoughts and relying more on like revealing my own experience and inner, you know, thoughts as the narrator. So there was nothing that, that you miss or will miss? No. no. Oh, that's wonderful. Mm-mm, not really. Hmm. Yeah, that... I believe you. I believe you because there's this um, quality of the book that I, I want to try to explain um, before I open the conversation a bit. Um, the One of the rare qualities of this book is that um, it it doesn't have a lot of fear in it. And and I don't mean to you know promote it in this hackneyed way that we promote autobiographical writing by saying that it's brave or fearless. It's not, that's not what I mean. I mean that truly this narrator, this, you know, self slash narrator is talking about things that are, you know, all all the stuff that's supposed to be so hard. It's personal, it's intimate, it's about sex, people masturbate in this book, FYI. Um, you know, there are, there are intimacies that, intimacies that are very sexual that take place at work, that take place between strangers, that take place between all, you know, all the genders. And at no point did I feel any of it was being sold to me as like proof or like your bona fides that you're like brave or Mm -hmm. that you're like hardcore enough. It was just completely cleansed of that fear that it wasn't I don't know, that, that sort of fear-based self-presentation that you just you know when you see. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? There's, um, why don't, um, if I could ask you to just read one more short section from the very beginning of Act Two. And I think it's just a couple of sections sure. that I think will show you what I'm trying to articulate here. Um, yeah, so like just the the two sections I sent my mm-hmm. and, and then the morning of okay, okay, so this is when i um I've moved with my husband to Los Angeles um for him to go to graduate school, and I'm looking for a job. I sent my advertising portfolio to every Los every agency in Los Angeles and had a couple of interviews. Eventually, I got the call I'd been waiting for. I had been chosen, I was the one they wanted. But as it turns out, I wasn't the one. I was one of the two. A father, the fatherly voice of my future boss told me my new partner's name, Ethan. Another E, I thought. He'd done a few years at a big agency in New York, won some awards, then taken a job in San Francisco working for another prestigious firm. I pictured him with a beard, since it seemed that every man from the northern part of the West Coast had one. The voice on the phone said Ethan raced road bikes in his free time. This detail made me reconsider. I knew cyclists. They were skinny and hairless. I thought of the Tour de France, which I'd watched with my father year after year. I'd ridden behind him on the old, unused 12-speed he'd bought my mom. I thought of Eric, spandex unnaturally bright against the browns and greens of the mountains behind him. 
I guess I was destined to be with a bike rider, trailing him on some kind of imaginary tandem. Ethan's wife is eight months pregnant, the dad voice said, breaking my reverie. This news made him seem mature, masculine. I re-reconsidered I re the beard. I'll take the job, I said. After I hung up, I paced around the apartment and my, said my new partner's name under my breath, Ethan, Ethan. I tried our names together and wondered whose would come first when other people said them. The morning of my first day, I put on a pale pink buttoned shirt, black jeans, and white vans. I drove to the office and parked my car. As soon as I shut the door, I heard that same fatherly voice. I turned and saw the man it belonged to, my new boss, David. He was tall and hearty. His skin was used to the sun. We walked up to the front door and he swung it open, letting, me, letting go of the handle, leaving room for me to glide in in front of him. Instead, I'm sorry, inside, men and women hurried from one place to another, talking loudly and laughing. Wait here, I said, he said, motioning to the bench in the foyer, and I sat down, feeling just outside the energy of this new family I'd soon be part of. No one looked at me. No one knew of my imminent joining. I heard David's voice again and stood up. As soon as I crossed the threshold, I saw Ethan, blue eyes shining, hand extended. It was rough and clammy. The grip was firm. I shook it, meeting his eyes as I'd been taught, and then looked down at our joined hands, our shirt cuffs. His was pink with white pinstripes. His jeans were blue. Their frayed ends grazed his checkered vans. Someone else in the room piped up. You guys call each other this morning to coordinate outfits? We all laughed. Nice to finally meet you, Ethan said, and, and I agreed, nodding my head too many times. His voice was high and lilting. He's gay, I thought, but he has a wife. I was already hungry and wondered where we'd go for lunch. I wondered whether we liked the same food, the same music. Without having met them yet, I already felt different from everyone in the office. The girls all dressed up, the frat boys with backwards caps, the volume of their voices signaling their confidence. Even though I'd just met Ethan, I sensed there was something we shared, something that prompted my boss to put us together. I vowed to find out what it was. For me, the sexiest parts of the book are these duets with Ethan that um, happen mostly in, in Act Two. And um, when I say duets, I mean they, you know, they sometimes, their bodies touch, sometimes they shake hands occasionally. They, ne they never like hook up. <laughs> but. <laughs> There's, um, they share work. They, they write things and they, and, they, and they write them for each other and with each other and they share the work, sometimes privately. I don't want to give too much away. Um, but there's such, there's such skill all through Act Two as I, I, I so enjoy feeling as though everything that happens with the narrator and Ethan is foreplay or afterplay of some kind. It's like, it's all just so hot. Um, Thank you. <laughs> and, 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 but you know, it's like this, it's like, you know, we, we, I guess you talked about what the characters were wearing, but it was just shirts and jeans and vans. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful and peculiar quality. Um, and that, and that is, like that, that's what I have to say to shill this book. Um, <laughs> and now I would love to um, be a bit quieter and invite anybody in the audience to ask or react. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Pleasure. Now it comes out today. It yeah. came out on Tuesday. Oh, on Tuesday. Tuesday? So it okay. is officially out. Has anybody ha read it yet? Awesome. Okay. Yeah. 
Yes. <laughs> Thank you. That's a great question. I actually, I feel like my um, my inclination to write is always to make a connection with someone because I think I wish there, I've always, you know, as the book it shows, like I've always wished for somebody to mirror or someone to like go, oh, that person did this and I now I can follow their lead, you know, but I think at the at the most basic, like you're always reading to feel less alone and, you know, to know that someone's had an experience that maybe you can learn from. And so I felt like I wanted to share, you know, my story and all the things I had been thinking about in the hopes that someone else, you know, had been thinking about these things and might connect with them. And that would allow me to have a conversation with somebody that I might not be able to have in person. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, well, you know, like certain people that I wrote about, I didn't have like a super close relationship with anymore. So I kind of didn't worry about that till later. (laughs) And then my husband who, you know, I am in an ongoing relationship with, I worried a lot more about that. And, but at the same time, I, I kind of like talked about the, the, the themes that I wanted to explore with him in broad strokes. And then, at the advice of my therapist, didn't show him anything that I was writing until I felt like I had a solid draft that really communicated everything I wanted to say as opposed to doing it piecemeal. And um, and then the first draft that he read, he just, he was not really a big fan of. And I also showed a lot of other people because I was like, I don't want to be making revisions just based on this one person who I am too close with. And so... I took, you know, the comments that he had and the comments that everyone else who didn't even know him or I had and realized they were all very similar. So that was super encouraging because then it allowed me to kind of like revise based on, you know, objective feedback, um, if you will, and things that felt like they made sense to me. And then, yeah, it was kind of just like an an evolution. Yeah. Or even other artists or Dalmatian, ballets. Um, and it's on the subject of, of love and monogamy, fidelity, all of these things, which is, you know, something people have written a lot about. Right. Like a lot to think about there. So, like, how did you. How did you know when was enough for research? Like, it gets so scary. You're always like, oh, but I need one more thing. Or, yeah. Like, I don't have enough. Yeah. Again, it kind of was, um, I just sort of felt it, but I do very much feel like the research was useful when I would feel stuck and I was like not, I didn't know what else to write. I'd just be like, I'll just copy down all the things I highlighted from this book I love. And, and then I felt like I was doing something all along. And then I think that once I had kind of, you know, been cataloging this like body of research or whatever, then slowly those things would find their way in. And I kind of felt confident that only the ones that mattered were like getting in if they were the ones that I kind of kept thinking about. Um, 
but yeah, like I, you know, was saying to you at a certain point, like some of that, I just had to cut away. Cause I was just like, I don't need to be bringing up like 30 different texts in this book. I mean, there's so many, I don't know if we even like talked about the Moby Dick and like it, there's, there's a lot. So yeah, I just, they served their purpose very much in terms of like alleviating writer's block for me at some points, but yeah. Yes. And using ballets, the great ballets like the Russian ballets, um, have a slow act, a fast act, Grand Allegro, where it's basically in the Russian ballets a bunch of circus tricks to win the audience and to participation. Mm. So I'm wondering, you know, with all the the up in the air, how narrative is really um, being defined by everybody writing right now. Um, how do you think about form? And you know, the music, the idea of the music really intrigues me. It's like I, so many ideas pop into my head. But I instinctually feel I'm going to write this book, um, but I don't quite know where you're going with it. Um, so, in terms of the form uh, and the music, like you're saying, I think I was very interested in, you know, each of these little sections here, like, you know, there's sometimes only a paragraph. I just really was interested in a form that felt containable. I think, like you're saying, with things being up in the air and narrative being, you know, complicated or whatever, that I love the idea of being able to kind of behold something in its entirety. Um, and that's why I think I'm drawn to these small bites, I guess, I, you know, that you could call them, because I like, I don't know, I just have a desire to, you know, want to kind of behold something all at once, like a, like a painting or um, like a piece of music or dance, I guess, where you're more of like a, a spectator. I don't know if that answers your question exactly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in here because I remember arguing with you about whether it should go into a three-act form. Of oh, course, yeah. my immediate reaction was, no, nothing should be in a, in a three-act form ever yeah, again. Yeah, right. It should be oceanic, yeah, and yeah. every part of it should be able to just float amid all the other parts that are exactly, as you were saying, you know, sometimes they have to be very short or right. sometimes they have to be, you know, another way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and of course, you know, it's, it's now in, in three acts and I love it very much. Um, but there also is this, I, I mean, to you, I'm using the word oceanic to mean just not, not vast, but like ocean-like, you know, it just, it contains everything. It's deep and it's capable, you know, you don't know what it's hiding in there. And despite the framework of the three acts that, um, we sort of introduced as being very important to the form, and it is. Within the acts, you just get to drift in the ocean. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really very thrilling. Thank you. Yes. Those 
those different cells, do you think it, it, it makes it somehow manageable, more manageable, or less manageable? And I happen to know that you're the mother now, and I'm, I'm thinking also about that new couple that you, you now have to. Right. You know, I think that I definitely, you know, the 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 person that I was when I was experiencing these events thought that the way to experience these like other potential selves was through coupling. And I think that's why I was like, well, I'm going to, you know, I want to be in a relationship with this person and see how, what that makes me and this other type of person and how that changes me. And, um, so I still think there's something to that, but then I think that in the, the experience of that, I realized that maybe there was some sort of way that I needed to, or maybe in going through that, a settling of maybe the self that I am in this moment and being more like happy with that or satisfied with that and not wondering so much about the unexamined lives or selves, you know, or thinking about them in other ways, like in writing, you know, how could you write yourself into those unknowns as opposed to necessarily implicating someone else in their own, you know, like personhood into that experiment. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I think like my motherhood is too new to kind of reflect on it in the same way because like these events are eight, nine, ten years ago and my daughter's too. So we'll see. <laughs> I mean, I think that it was natural in that I was trying to accurately depict the moments or the, you know, kind of the overarching flow of the narrative. And there were these moments that stood out to me that were funny. Um, although I don't know that they were funny, funny, but like, you know, things that that seemed like there was a lightness because I wanted to make sure I reflected that as well. There were so many other you know, like when you're writing a memoir, you have so much to like that you can't put in, obviously. And um, so, yeah, I just just trying to make sure I accurately reflected my life of the moments that were, you know, high, low, funny, serious, and all of that. But but again, to some degree, without a conscious <laughs> a consciousness to it, yeah. Other questions. Yeah. Um, I have a two and a half year old, <laughs> and you have a three year old. It sounds like. Yeah. How do you make time for writing? <clears throat> yeah. Um, well, I right now have a very um, awesome job situation where I'm working remotely. So when I and I'm working part time remotely, so that's been an incredible way to kind of. Um, write, uh, like carve out time to write when I'm not working. And I sometimes have, you know, when I really am wanting to generate more work, we'll write after my daughter goes to bed because she goes to bed at 7.30. <laughs> so 
I try to do that, but sometimes I'm tired and I don't want to. But she's also in daycare, so I don't feel that way of like in early motherhood where I was watching her all the time and there just was no there was no energy at all to do that. And I think once she's gotten to that age where someone else is watching her, it allows me to like have some time to do that. <laughs> yeah. When they're a little older, I, I have an almost seven-year-old. When they're a little older, they can just like work right next to you. That's what our dream is, is it's, that like someday we'll all three just be it's reading side by side in a room. It's pretty yeah. much what we wanted ever and, since yeah, imp- she input was born. From people with even older children uh, is welcome. Yeah. Donna or anybody. <laughs> the dream <laughs> yes um god that's a great hard question um i just the fact that i finished it you know, <laughs> I think that's just so such a lesson for me in finding something that I care enough about to stick with, which is probably also a great metaphor for a long-term relationship. <laughs> um, and like, yeah, really being attentive to that and, and nurturing it and then being able to hold it in your hand is like, it, that's really gratifying. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you guys all so much. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you guys. Yay. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.